Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. I have Dennis Mannion who is the CEO of Resilience Code. And we're going to learn a lot more about what they do over there at Resilient Code. It's pretty exciting, super innovative stuff. But also, Dennis has a remarkable eclectic background, you know, really streaming through, you know, professional sport, uh, high-level business, really business partnerships and innovation, and sort of everything in between. He's a really, really great storyteller. I think our audience will enjoy today. And we're going to really talk about, you know, optimization. We're going to talk about, you know, the importance of relationship building in organizations and the importance of, you know, taking a 30,000 foot view when we're viewing uh, situations and then knowing when to zero down. All of this with a focus on sort of the organization and the business of brain health. So I'm very, very excited about today's episode. Dennis, thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Enjoy doing this with you. Love your company. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning here. Dennis, where did you grow up? Well, it's interesting. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I was born in New York and grew up in Pittsburgh. And I grew up at a time when the Steelers were a very dominant you know, factor in the NFL, Terry Bradshaw and that whole gang. And the interesting thing about it, growing up there, and then after I moved on to UMass and the Phillies after that, I didn't realize there were seven other people within a 30-mile radius of Pittsburgh that all became presidents of professional sports teams, including myself. And I thought it was because at that time and moment, sports was everything to Pittsburgh. Could still be. And then, you know, here I am later in life, I live outside of the Boston area. And it's the same thing in Boston. You know, everybody in the last 20 years, those four teams have all been champions and people are really sports-centric. So it was a great place to grow up to, uh, you know, play baseball, football, and basketball, and then, you know, kind of go on. And my lucky move was I was at the University of Pittsburgh as an econ major. And uh, at the end of one semester, much to my surprise, I got called out, 400 kids in the class, by the professor of English Dean, and he uh, asked me to come down. I thought I was in trouble. He said, hey, I read your paper called Universal Baseball. It's about imaginary league. He said, that's fantastic. But I got to ask you, like, what's up with that sling you're wearing? I said, oh, I had an ulnar nerve surgery after my freshman year. And he said, wow, you're going to keep playing baseball? I said, no, I don't think so. I never really got started, to be honest. And he said, hey, there's a program in sport management up at Amherst at UMass. He said, would you have any interest in that? I said, I don't even know what that is. And he said, oh, it's the business of sport. Uh, I can make a phone call for you. And this is a synchronicity of life. He made a phone call. I went up and interviewed with nine professors and luckily got into their program. And a year and a half later, I was seeking an internship in the Philadelphia Phillies. And Dave Montgomery, who was the president of the team, interviewed me and I went home and I told my parents it was awful. He never even looked at me. And as soon as I said that, the phone rang and he asked me if I could come in the next day to help him, you know, basically stuff envelopes over the winter holiday. And when that was over, I was leaving. I said, David, do I have the internship? And he said, no. I thought, well, there goes my sports career. And then he said, you have a full-time job. 
So it all wow. started, you know, with the Phillies and uh, went from there. It's really awesome. Holy smoke, what a cool story. And, you know, we'll, we'll cover a lot of this because the background, you know, in major league sports is really spanning over 35 years, right? And, you know, all the way from, you know, this concept of thinking I'd be stuffing envelopes to really, you know, working in the executive level in not only, you know, major league baseball, but really in the National Hockey League, you know, the NFL, the NBA a little bit too, like all of these different sports. What do you think it was about your quest, your interest that really led you to such kind of high levels? What was it inside of you that helped to do that? I think I was lucky because I ultimately was pushing. I think the whole reason why I got into sports, one was because of course it's sports interested. But then when I understood the power of sport and how you can make individuals and families so happy. That was my driving purpose. And lucky for me, I, I have kind of a creative side of my mind and an operations mind. So the ability to come up with ideas and then put them in play was a big part of success. And uh, the Phillies had a culture at that time where they wanted to be the best in class and everything. And they were very flexible, you know, with me and some other employees as well. And I was able to do the ticket sales thing when I was young, but also work in the broadcast booth and work on the promotional teams and things like that. And by the end of 15 years, there wasn't any aspect of business that I didn't know. And um, I had gotten into this place where we were trying to take the content that the game delivers and deliver it to the fans in ways that felt like a more inside access type deal. And that was a real turn on. That got, you could see you know, the numbers increasing and seeing people getting more interested in the team and the team getting more interested in fans and so forth. So it was an awesome launching pad to take me elsewhere. And I was recruited to go to Major League Baseball as a marketing director. And I turned that down just because we had five kids that I didn't think we could afford New York. And before I knew it, I was offered the COO job to the Avalanche and the Nuggets. And I decided, hey, I'll take a rip at this. I figure the mechanics of the business side of baseball is very similar to the other two sports. And uh, it was really interesting to contrast the mindset of a baseball player versus the mindset of a hockey player versus the mindset of a basketball player. Completely different mindsets, completely different games. And then you have to build your culture around that identity. So it's really, you know, a great study in not just sports, but human nature and how cultures work around different, in that case, different sports, but probably in different businesses as well. Oh, 100%. And I like the focus on culture. You know, as I think about, you know, obviously this podcast is called the Brain Mastery Podcast. And when you think about the business of sport, but also maybe the business of brain health, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how those kind of worlds interact. Where do they intersect? Because we had this amazing, I mean, I feel like I've known you a long time. Like we became buddies a couple of weeks ago. A full disclosure to our audience, you know, we've had a few conversations and I really, really appreciate your eclectic experience, but also the wisdom that you brought to some of these topics. Why don't you talk a little bit about the relationship between brain health, the business of brain health and sports? I think one of the great takeaways from all the years in sports with teams to see how players think and how some perform in stressful situations and others don't perform so well, who shows up on a daily basis, who doesn't. 
starting with Steve Carlton, who literally was so dedicated to his pitching day, he'd walk in the door, everybody would wave to him and he'd say, what day is it? And everybody would yell, win day, because it's all about winning. And that was the last he talked in. Basically down to the locker room, did his routines religiously, into martial arts and stretching and so forth, put cotton in his ears and go to business. And that mindset was the first power mind that I had noticed as a young person and how focus basically elevated his game, his level of intensity, his performance was so remarkable to me that I started to think, wow, well, he, what is the common element here? And it was this clarity around what he needed to do, how he identified himself, how he took that identity and built rituals to support that identity. And then it was easy to then start thinking about, wait, creative people down the hall, hallway, how are they thinking and how are they using that kind of focus, using the creative part of their brain or the operations people down the other hall that are you know, supposed to take care of all the fans throughout the game and how do they think from a list-oriented standpoint or the salespeople who could really sing a song. And that's the first time it started hit me that, wow, organizations should be set up by mindset. And where do you come from? You come from a creative bend, a relative bend, an operative bend, or even an administrative bend, and put those things together to create the same sort of rhythm that you have between a shortstop and a second baseman or a point guard and a forward. And that's why sports to me, from a mental standpoint, was such a turn on. Because these guys have to show up regularly, you know, at the top of their game with top focus. Some can do it very easily. Others have it highly ritualized so they can do it. Uh, we had a player, for example, at the Ravens, Shannon Sharp, who did everything the same. It was so impressive the same way, his rituals, mindset, mindset, mindset. Guys like Ray Lewis, film, 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 and more film, that discipline around his brain, but encoding all of it. And he looked like a football savant when he got out there at practice and at the games. So the mental part of it is so critical. And then as time went on and you start to see some of the injuries that come as a result of sports, the impacts, the head whips that you see in hockey and in football, and even in basketball is very physical. And that impact that it had on focus, that got me really interested in the aspects of the brain and how that focuses. Healthy brains and unhealthy brains. How do you tune them up and make them tremendous? I did notice something that was really revealing to me about pro athletes. We all think that if we have our endurance at a high level and our strength and our physical capabilities tuned, we can maybe someday be a pro athlete. Mentally, though, their ability, their cognitive function around physical movement, their physical motor memory is so elite that they can watch even a martial art move or a dance move and duplicate it immediately. Where it might take us average people a year to master some of that stuff, they could encode very quickly. So the athlete brain became an uh, interesting thing for me early in the game. And eventually I started to apply that to the different work zones to right. creators get more creative and operators get more operative and focus was a big part. I think that's part of why we connected so well. I, you said it much more elegantly than I could have, but I think about, well, you know, our organization, ABI Wellness, and, you know, we really were driven by culture and operations and the intersection of those two important elements. 
And our vision is to improve quality of life. Now, that was not the vision we had actually initially come up with. We had a really cool sounding vision that we, the team of people, came up with. However, one of the co-founders of our organization, uh, Howard Eaton, said, well, what is it the client is saying? What is really happening here? And when we surveyed them, improved quality of life. So it's one of those things from a visionary perspective, we will never be in full alignment with that, but we're going to strive up towards that. And we're going to drive behavior in the mission, right? Which is quite specific and more measurable. And then the values underpinning some of the behavior towards the fulfillment of the mission that's ultimately going to hopefully drive us towards more fulfillment and alignment of the vision. And I think that's why we kind of connected because with ABI Wellness, we want to provide systems in the mission that promote improving really optimization of labor and resources for people that work in the brain health space, inclusive of performance and sport, so that we can help people live to more of their values, right? And ultimately have more joy. So I think that's kind of an aha moment I just reached here while listening to you. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I've learned that everything's about, to me anyway, it's about what you focus on is what you become. And let's let's go to the individual as apart from the team or the company. You know, how do you identify yourself in the workplace? You know, you may call yourself the lighthouse because you have all the great ideas that energize people. You're creative. Or, you know, in your relationship life, what do you see yourself as? You know, loving, kind, et cetera. And then also go into your energy level. How do you see yourself as a, do you see yourself as a champion? And then you just get exactly what you said. You move then into, well, then what behaviors support that identity? And behind that identity, what ritualized, what protocols and what rituals are you going to develop in a disciplined way, in a calendar-based way to achieve those identities? And can you change your identity because it's not right? Yeah, you absolutely can. But a lot of that, I took from the player mindset, which when it came down to their game, that's a very finite number of things they have to do. They do it from a highly disciplined ritual type of pattern. The way they practice, the way they play, the way they sleep, the way they eat, the way they move is all kind of part of a master plan. And um, I also noticed that athletes work very well with regimented schedules. And when you start to apply that in the workplace and start to identify what is the identity of, of our overall organization, should be identity, by the way, should mean how do you think and how do you execute? How do you think and how do you execute? That's your identity. That then can be applied to the vision for your company or your team. And after you have your vision, of course, you go into your values and your rules, and then you have a thousand missions. But every time you do something, you ask this question, am I contributing or contaminating the identity? So if I say I'm thoughtful, progressive, and passionate, am I doing that right now? And that's the litmus test over and over and over again. So to me, brain health and ritualization, they go hand in hand. And the only ability to move away from growing, a lot of brains grow like a hedge instead of like a tree, is focus. And you have to have the rituals. You have to have it calendared. Otherwise, it's too easy. To Some people say this is a great thing. You, you can never skip. You're allowed to suck. 
<laughs> just don't skip. You'd just be crummy. Mm-hmm. So you feel crummy, still do your rituals. And I think that's a big part of moving forward with the brain. I think they talk about neuroplasticity now. A big part of this, how many rhythms, have, how many reps have you taken? How many times have you destroyed the reps by doing something counter or counterbalances it? So it's, it really becomes an issue of planning and focus and ritualization over and over and over again. It's, it's really exciting to watch people that have gone through concussions and things like that, amongst many other therapies, start to get into a pattern, much of what you guys profess in your business, which I love about it. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I think, what a masterclass on that. You know, it's something especially I think I have to ask. So when we're looking at this, even from, let's use a clinical example for this. So let's say, and we've seen this actually, let's say you're in the sports environment or even in your great, exciting work going on at Resilience Code, because this is a new way of approaching things, right? That's really starting to grow. And it's all backed in science and good measurement too, right? So when we think about this and you serve as chief executive officer right now at Resilience Code, when you take on a new process, or something that might be new, keeping in mind in your organization, you already have a set parameter of things. What would lead you to say, you know what, this is an area that we should probably pay attention to? Because in doing that, that would mean with the systems that are already there, you might have to change a few things in order to make room to do something new. How do you go about making decisions like that? Absolutely. It's kind of like a game plan. So Resilience Code has seven or so disciplines from, you know, blood, body, brain testing, that type of thing. And each department has its purpose that connects to the bigger vision. And under those are a number of goals that they create annually with actions that need to be taken. And they're usually collaborative actions where it's not just PT is over here disconnected from our testing area for kinetics or our training area. And when we make changes in process, it is done in a group setting where we can pressure check the differences. So we always talk about version 1.0, 1.1, all the way up to 2.0 and so forth. So our mantra at Resilience Code is you're always either progressing or regressing. You never stay the same. So we're not comfortable with processes that stay the same all the time, but they are connected and similar. It's not, generally, we don't have a big sea change and change philosophy. We just improve the processes that we have. And I think that keeps the company energized. It keeps people fired up to just go to the next level and to just keep moving. So the company started in the world of just brain, body, and blood testing, heavy analysis, and creating a plan that all kind of singularly looked at your health, your energy level. Now we've started to venture into the world of the mind and how does the mind interplay with those pieces? And then also into like different aspects of the body and how that fits into the blood piece. So making change there is a part of the culture. And some of it came from, you know, early stage companies throw a lot of things up at the wall and you do get fatigue from, oh, what's the new idea of the day? But that's what startups are. You do throw things against the wall and see what fits. Thank goodness resilience codes past that stage. 
So now it's just changing the mission and the game plan that goes with the missions, probably on a quarterly basis, sometimes on a monthly basis. And it is complicated because the theory behind the company is each client's special. It's N equals one. We don't have AI to say, hey, if you have a concussion, you do these five things. Uh -uh. Your concussion is different than mine. You know, someone else is different and we have different protocols for them. Same with their body structure. It's all different. So it's, it's really cool that the company gets variables. When you have variables, you have variability of process. It just goes hand in hand. Love it. That's so cool. You know, it, it reminds me of, I mean, you would know him, John Maxwell, right? Uh, great leadership, uh, you know, guru who has the mantra of just never finished, right? right. Like people will say to him, well, John, you've got grandkids and I mean, you're in your 80s and he's like, I'm never finished though. I'm going to keep working on myself. I'm going to keep working on learning. I'm going to keep moving because in doing so, I might end up one. I'm comparing myself to to borrow from probably one of my favorite applications out there on 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 the mobile phone is Strava, where you know their whole thing is beat yesterday. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment to try to at least drive behavior towards that. Absolutely. And again, it goes into that world of you know progress or regress. I think a lot of people think they can stay the same, but you don't. And mm -hmm. skipping rituals that you create you know, to improve yourself are, are a big deal. And, you know, when you skip them once, that makes you skip them twice. And uh, I love the other part of it. It's like 99% is a lot harder than 100%. You know? Oh, man. I, like, there's so much there. It, it makes me think I was in, I'm just pulling up a quotation I found. I was in um, Chicago for work. And when I was there, it was really interesting. Uh, in speaking with a few great professionals there, I went on a walk. and. Uh, my son's a big Nike fan, right? So I see the Nike town in Chicago. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Right beside Michael Jordan's steakhouse, right? So I'm like, okay, let's go in and take a look around. And on the wall, there's a great, great quote from Jordan. And it says, uh, never quit. You do it once, it runs the risk of becoming a habit. Never quit. It's like, wow. And then the other thing with Jordan's mindset that was interesting is, a lot of people always said, you know, watching Jordan in a game, you won't understand who Jordan is. Watch Jordan in a practice. And it really hits on the ritual, I, I think. Why don't you give us a little more insight? Because you, you've got some wonderful insight on that from top performers that you've been around. And I'm not just saying top performers on the field. How about some of the top performers in terms of executives, right? And even owners in some cases. Absolutely. I mean... I can tell you, I had mentioned Steve Carlton for a reason, just because of the amount of prep the guy did. But I would also tell you one of the most impressive athletes to watch year-round was Ray Lewis, whether it was the weight room or practice. It was like having a coach on the field. Practices meant something to this guy, and he made it meaningful for all of his teammates. And he's the guy that would have run off the sidelines to go out and give someone the business if they weren't hustling. And I just, to me, I thought, wow, a lot of people think pro athletes during the week, you know, and, and the NFL are just recouping. This guy was game on 24-7 all the time. And you find that with all the great ones. And it's funny, you bring up Jordan, people bring up Tiger Woods. Every time you go to the elite elite, they have so many go-to rituals that, you know, help them perform better. 
And to your earlier point too, they're always perfecting the ritual. There's always mm. a better way to do it. So and with executives, for sure, the best of the best had a way of creating around them a tremendous amount of clarity as leaders. So people understood specifically where they were coming from. They may not all agree, but they know exactly where they're coming from. And you can't get to that magical word of collaboration amongst a team or a workplace. You can't have collaboration unless you have total clarity of the roles because the shortstop has to know he's a shortstop, not a first baseman. The accountant needs an accountant, not a marketing person. Doesn't mean that they can't have marketing thoughts, but it does mean they're being counted on to create the profit loss statements for an idea that a marketing person would get. And I love that rhythm of collaboration, which only happens when leadership provides complete clarity. And let's dial that down to the individual. How much clarity do you have in your life? How much time are you wasting on a daily basis? How many times do you sleep in? How many times do you just mm. not do anything in the car on the way to work? You don't listen to anything that improves your performance. You just want to chill. You get to work, you have some coffee, just want to chill before you get started. And then you chill all day. <laughs> you go home and you binge watch TV. Anyway, yeah. away with it. the point of it is the elite performers clearly on the executive level had process and procedures they followed every day. And that creates so much trust within the organization because they're not bouncing off. Uh, I love it. I mean, it's really interesting. I remember in graduate school, I had one professor and, uh, you know, he kept kind of hammering this into us and it was what measured gets done. Right. And he just kept hammering it. And I'm like, Oh, it's Drucker. Right. And, but it's, I'm sure it's many other people. And, um, you know, through that lived experience, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you know, this is where I really struggled when we first got into doing this work with ABI wellness. And we saw all these clinics that were doing really good stuff, you know, that I saw online. I'm like, this is wonderful. Like, maybe we don't need to build this tool because building it's going to be hard. So I was like trying to, you know, not have to do that. And looking at them, they're saying they do complete concussion management. They do cognitive rehabilitation, focused on function. And I'm saying these are all kind of the things that we've been doing off-label in education for people who have these persisting cognitive issues. But what was interesting was when I looked under the hood, I found that there weren't really the systems powering the behavioral outcomes that they were looking for in a way that was tracked and measured in real time. And as I came to learn more about it, I found that to be quite problematic because I was like, well, how do you repeat it daily? And then further to your point, there was no good answer to that, which led us together to say, okay, we need to devise something here that could work. But what I also found really interesting further to your work at Resilience Code, and I totally agree with it, is treat each person as individual. So it's an N of one situation. So then you needed to find a way when we thought about you know concussion and, and brain health to really look at what, okay, what's the best out there in behavioral intervention? So aerobic exercise, extremely good for brain health, undeniable. The literature is clear, uh, but it needs to be dosed in a way that is best for me. My resting heart rate is different than yours. You know, my mobility is different than yours. So it needs to be done for you and you, in a way that you can measure against yourself. Your cognitive, you know, rehabilitation or enhancement is going to be individualized to you, but needs to be driven by a good system. Mindfulness, really struggle with that. I'm like, well, everybody says they're mindful. But I'm like, okay, what does that mean in behavior though? And how do you scale that in a way that it becomes a habit? 
And then, okay, how do we measure it all? And this is something that I really like about what you're doing at Resilience Code. Okay, how do we look at the transfer of all these different kind of health domains into your overall habits, quality of life, blood biomarkers, behaviors, you know, personal satisfaction in a way that's actually valid and reliable? I'll tell you what, a couple of things. You're absolutely right. You know, and, and the founder at Resilience Code, Chad Presmack, always, always uses the expression that you can't manage what you don't measure. And a big part of that program is everything is measured. There's data around every supplement you take and every med that you take or IV or peptide. And it's funny, it made me think about the, an owner, the previous owner of the Oakland A's, Lou Wolf. I was on a plane with him and he said, he who knows the numbers wins. And mm-hmm. I think that that feedback that the data provides you is what makes you compliant when you have a heavily disciplined program for yourself. And, you know, in resilience code, of course, it all revolves around your health and making sure that did you do your workout? What time did you go to bed? Did you have a digital sunset? Did you stop eating three hours before you went to bed? What did your whoop say? What did you tell us in your MSQ? And it's very fascinating to me. And it is a big project for that company. You know, it's so imperative people get accurate data and that you're correlating the right things because there's a lot of therapies that go on there, you know, depending on the patient. So um, measuring everything is really, really critical for the feedback part of it and also directionally because everything's not always right. You know, sometimes someone's neurocoupling is off. It wasn't an injury. It was just it's something other than than an injury-based issue. So um I've enjoyed the data part of it there, and they keep getting better and better at these revelations. And it leads you to find, you know, on some occasions, not often, but it leads you to find off-label uses of certain types of things. Like a lot of people are into metformin now, you know, for mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the diabetes. But um, that's the rigor of the place there is that it is, it's a hard program to do but it's a lot easier when you measure it. A hundred percent. And it just comes down to, it's been shocking to me just how a few places actually are driven by a system. When we look at, even in the business of physiotherapy, they're so incredibly dependent on a remarkably talented human being that has his own, his or her own methods for delivering great physiotherapy. However, that doesn't scale. You know, it just doesn't scale. And it does, it will not necessarily produce predictable outcomes. And that's not good, right? That is not good. Absolutely not. And that's a big thing for us because we did not want to have a chop shop as our PT go-to. We spend 45 minutes with our patients and we collect data based on their mobility and balance and so forth. And then we correlate that with the training team on their endurance and strength and I think that makes it a much more powerful program because that person who has a back issue is getting feedback on the various exercises that they're doing in their range of motion. So it's, I, I, yes, I, I, I feel terrible for the PT industry at large that is so um, insurance driven that it's like, I have so many sessions and that's it. And oh my gosh, I'm running this business and now I've got to run people through in like 30 minute segments where I'm with them for like 10 minutes and 20 minutes of other stuff, you know, that, to get warmed up for their 10 and it, it's failing. It really fails. 
So 100%. Well, and I just acknowledge you and, and the team over at Resilience Code for taking a step forward. And, and, and it's not just you, there's a growing uh, group of companies that are starting to really do this and, and acknowledging and recognizing that really the greatest investment you have is you in you. And, uh, you know, I think one of the quotes I heard is, I'm a stock, I invest in me. Yeah, you know, that was really interesting, right? Like, uh, and you got to make those investments, you know, regularly. You know, another great person comes from pro sports, great guy, Mark Stevenson, and some sort of tactical athletic background. And one of the talks he gave out near Stanford that I was fortunate enough to attend was about a very simplistic concept, but actually complicated when you get into the details, was the whole idea of the bank account, the personal bank account. And it's all about withdrawals and deposits and keeping track of them. And what kind of good deposits are you making? That's right. And what kind of bad withdrawals are you making? How can you mitigate those? And I mean, I think that's just a beautiful metaphor for this work. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Isn't it funny how it always comes back to, you know, no score, no game. Like if, if you're keeping score, like what did I do good? What did I didn't do well? What is the one thing I should be doing? What is the one thing I shouldn't be doing? Uh, it's really key, I think, to progress. So um, that's pretty. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. Love it. So, I mean, I mean, in this work of maybe zeroing in on brain health then specifically, what's one or two areas that you find pretty frustrating? And I think you hinted at a couple of them in the previous segment. You know, I would say the hardest part of it is, okay, you have somebody that, you know, has an extensive brain injury and you are delivering a program that has a lot of totality, a lot of depth to it. And you're expecting that person to execute on the treatment modalities that you're presenting to them. And I find that you have to be extremely careful to measure that person's resilience at that time, because they may not be able to handle the full-on therapy. They may have to go in smaller steps, which gets very frustrating for them because they just want to get better. But you're knowing you can't give them five things to do at one time. It's one piece at a time. And uh, we've had, you know, um, some elite hockey players who have come in with some injuries. And those guys want to get back on that ice so badly. And you're just telling them, we got to slow this down and until we can put, you know, some loud rock music on and strobe lights and put you in sunglasses and throw balls at you and see if you can catch them. You're not ready to go back on the ice. So, and we can't do that yet because you're so far from that. It's not even funny. And I think it's people's own uh, impatience is one thing, but also their competitive nature. They're not used to being sick and they're not themselves. And, um, you know, one other, you know, interesting revelation I had, I always thought that our productivity, our life is really driven by the amount of love we have in our life. And that kind of stimulates you in every direction. However, I got very sick with Lyme disease and it lasted almost three years. It was horrible. It changes your entire ability to be disciplined and do the things you're supposed to do because you're sick and you don't feel good. So I think that's one of the more challenging parts of having people come in that have serious neurological issues going on and knowing they can't do all this stuff at one time, but they have to be motivated enough to do the small things to get to the end goal. And it's, it's hard because they're just not the same person. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And then when they get through it and they come through and they're better, they can't believe they couldn't have done this faster. <laughs> you know, so. Well, that's, and thank you for sharing that vulnerability uh, with our audience. Cause I think it will land for so many people because I've come to experience many people on the clinical level who struggled with, you know, brain injury and cognition and these sorts of things. And of course, those people that I was fortunate enough to spend some time with and hold space with really made some big changes in their lives, which is remarkable. But for the individual, for the clinician, this is who I want to hear this message. Many have been beaten down by the system. Many have gotten to the point where, you know what, I'm going to just do my best. I'm going to work eight to four. The system's not working for me. There's not much I can do. I don't have much agency to change it anyways. So let's call it as we see it here. This is who I want to talk to because there are ways, there are systems, there are organizations that are following the science and are out there now that are enabling you, you professional, to do more of what you wanted to do when you went and got this degree. Don't let the system win because the resistance is real, right? Like it's a true thing. And sometimes, sadly, I've come to this conclusion. Many times the resistance is also (laughs) self-imposed. Sometimes we need to say, oh, you know what? In fact, the North Star I thought was here. And I actually still thought it was here, but actually I've gone off course. Yeah. And there's an opportunity for me to go back more towards my North Star, which was maybe the mission was because of my experience with my father and his stroke was to get into brain rehab. And now I found myself not really able to do much of that. I'm doing some assessments and that's about it. And maybe I need to get back to doing more of that rehab. Maybe I need to understand more about programs that are available that would enable me to do more of what I want to do. It's extremely interesting to me at Resilience Code in particular to watch, you can almost tell who's going to be on that high-flying, tenacious path of compliance and then someone who's just not well enough to do it. And I look at it this way. I like the programs that are being developed now because they have totality to them. And imagine you take your car to get something fixed in the engine. And you have to go to one place for spark plugs, but you have to go to a different car doctor for you know, your oil change and another different car doctor for your brakes because there's brake specialists and a spark plug. And we always recognize that people have been to multiple doctors coming from different points of view. And they'll have one doctor will tell them, depending on their illness, eat whatever you want, it's fine. You know, have another, they'll have us tell them, wait a second, they're telling you that, but sugar itself produces more bad outcomes for you. And then they'll go to, you know, from specialist to specialist, they get multiple points of information that are conflicting. And I think the first thing to do with all this is remove the conflicts. So we kind of have the whole picture here. And then let them know, here's where we think you are. Let's go easy on yourself, but trust us. This is a walk, run, you know, scenario. That's so true. I mean, I've seen that. That is a real serious problem in health and wellness. I mean, it's really serious because what happens, and I think you hit on it so well, what can happen, and I've seen it happen a lot, especially when people are really relying on their insurance, is we come into a clinic And we start with an occupational therapy assessment, a physical therapy assessment, a GP assessment, 
maybe a psychological assessment. Those are four different assessments. When really the issue is I want to be able to think a little bit quicker and move a little bit better. That's the goal. So why can't we find a way to have a better baseline assessment that each of those domains could agree on and then deploy the appropriate scaled program to utilize the resources that we have earned and paid for as clients to help me move towards the achievement of that goal in a way that provides me the agency to walk into that. And then when medical intervention is needed, great. You know, I love that. The idea that there's a one-stop starting place that gets a whole look, that way you have direction, whether you need to go to orthopedic or you need to Mm -hmm. go to an oncologist. In my circumstance, if you can believe it, I got Lyme disease at the end of my tenure with the pistons and it progressively got to the place where I couldn't move my low back or my neck, but I didn't know what I had. So I had the team got me with four different orthopedic surgeons who all said, Oh, your film looks good. Just go to PT. Then uh, on the rebound coming back, one of them suggested you might have MS. Whoa. And then go dial forward. Another one said, you know, we've got to start to get you to an oncologist. There may be some cancer issues here. So your mind is just, at this point, mush. Wearing ice all day on your back and neck. You've been to all these different people. You've spent a fortune to it. And lucky for me, the team got me out. That's how I got to resilience code to begin with. Mm. And it took the surgeon there, founder, actually, of this whole thing. And he really runs the show. took about 10 minutes to look at me and go, I know you've had a Western blot test for Lyme, but that doesn't do the trick. You've got to do a higher level hygienics test. He goes, I know you have it. I just know it. And then he showed me the markers and they were, I mean, beyond off the charts and thank goodness they weren't neurological. They were all central nervous system. And it was just such a relief. But imagine patients that go through three, four years with misdiagnoses and they're spending money. You don't have money endlessly to spend on this stuff even with insurance, because insurance isn't going to cover it all. It's just, it's tough. It's a tough wow. road. So it's nice to, you really wish the system was set up. Remember the old fashioned general practitioner? Yeah. Wish it wouldn't be that, but it would be more like a bigger wellness treatment plan. And then they move you up the level. level two. Well, that's where, you know, and who knows where these things will go. But regardless, we're going to keep in contact because I really appreciate you and your time and what you do, but also your passion leaning into this work with personal experience. That's definitely what's led us into, as you know, you know, some of my story, that's what, that's what led me and our entire team to this work. So, you know, I'm curious because you're such a eclectic guy. What are one or two of the greatest influences you have? So these could be people, this could be a book. It could be a mantra. You know, what, what are one or two of those? It's really interesting. There are two things that, they're expressions that, that move me, and um, they're not my, connected to my purpose. My purpose would be, you know, to see a world where everyone has an opportunity to flourish and realize, improve, and expand their talents. That's, I love that. I love, like, the idea of being in a position to help people rise and be better. But the things I always lean on are really one expression, which is define the moment or the moment will define you, which pushes me into action. And the other expression I really like is, and it calms me down at times 
when people are not understanding you. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, for those who understand, no explanation is necessary. And for those who don't, none will do. And it's got me more comfortable to not fight the fight when you're talking to the unenlightened and they want to stay unenlightened. And it's like, I'm not going to waste my time with this anymore. And that's not just because of sports thing. It's just in life in general. It's like, okay, there's always so much time. So from a motivational standpoint, both motivate me different parts. Yeah. Amazing. That's so good. I've never heard on the history of the show. I've never had somebody explain it like that. It was awesome. So thank you. Thank you for that. So for people that are listening, they're saying, hey, this guy's doing important work here at, at Resilience Code. How do people get a hold of Resilience Code? Where do they find information about it? The best way is, is of course, to go to the website and uh, you can find that. Uh, just look up Resilience Code or plug in myresiliencecode.com. And uh, they can find it easily there. It's tricky. I want to explain that the website, it gives off an aura of physical training. The company is not a gym. It is not about physical training. That's a piece of it that uh, clients locally can take advantage of or they can do virtual with the company. Not not a completely necessary tool to the program. But it's a very thorough website. Excellent. Yes, it is. I've been there and it's found great value in it. And and keep in mind, the founder is a very well-trained physician who's continuing to work on himself always. And I think is very resilient himself. Sounds like I've never met him, but he wants to help you understand how to get yourself better. I think that's the best way. Maybe I, I don't know him from what you told me. That's really, he wants to help you on your quest, like he did for you personally, to get the most out of each day possible for you. This is a probably one of the most unique human beings you'll ever meet. His empathy levels are so high. He cares so deeply for everybody, but add to it, Harvard educated, Columbia, you know, for medical school, interned under Dr. Oz, went on to become like a world-class neurosurgeon. Uh, with great proficiency around back injuries and so forth. And he woke up one day and said, I can do more. I'm going to keep doing my surgeries. I have my surgery business, but we've got to get to the root cause of people's sickness, whether it's a toxic environment that they're in or other types of physical issues they have. And I've never seen anybody that you want to talk about measuring every aspect of his life. This guy He's got sleep down to a science, his workouts. I might have mentioned to you previously, this is a 52-year-old who can still bench 500 pounds and uh, challenged himself to hit a 40 and 4.9 and and he was 49. He did make a 5.2 or something like that, which is pretty impressive for that that age. But what I uh, truly love about him is his compassion and his brains. He's just this, get him on a whiteboard, and he just has a way of understanding the body and the brain. Amazing. It's really amazing. I encourage everybody to check it out. You know, please, please do. And Dennis, I want to acknowledge you, you know, for uh, your career and for really living that never finished mantra. I know you're a family man and, you know, I think you're with family right now, which is awesome. So I thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been a gift to me to have you share some of your wisdom with our guests today. And, you know, Who knows? Maybe we'll do this again, because I think it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. 
And I hope our audience did as well. So thank you again for joining us, Dennis. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and wanna learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.